and welcome. Greetings from UNICEF Office of Research in Ocenti and welcome to all our hundreds of participants from around the world. I'm your host, Sarah Crow, and this is the sixth Leading Minds Online, what the experts say on coronavirus and children. Today, we will be unpacking one of the hottest topics at the moment, the recession and its impact on children and families. COVID may not be sickening and killing children in big numbers, but the worst could lie ahead for the world's younger citizens because of the knock-on effect on the global economy. We will be asking the experts, you see them there, just how bad it is and how to make the best of the worst of this crisis within a crisis. We're fortunate today to have a distinguished group of panelists joining us live from around the world, but unfortunate not to have the Minister of Finance from Ghana, who sadly had to cancel at the last minute and withdraw due to an emergency. So let me introduce you to them. First of all, from Oxford, England, we have Professor of Globalization and Development, Ian Golden. Welcome, Ian. From Delhi, from New Delhi, India, we have economist and professor Jaiti Ghosh. Welcome, Jaiti. And from Amsterdam, hi, Jaiti. Uh, from Amsterdam, we have Sasha Nauta, public policy editor with The Economist newspaper. Welcome, Sasha. From London, we have Africa analyst, Joel Kibazo. Welcome, Joel. And from Florence, Italy, we have UNICEF Innocenti's Chief of Social and Economic Policy, Dominic Richardson. Welcome to you all. I'm going to be speaking to all of you in a minute, and my colleague David Anthony will be taking a deep dive into solutions. Over to you, Thanks, David. Sarah, and welcome to Leading Minds number six. I'll be looking at the questions coming in from the audience in about 30 to 40 minutes, and then we'll go into a short poll which the participants will be able to fill in during the break. And then we'll go to the solution sections where I'll be trying to pin down the panelists on the recommended policies. Over to you, Sarah. Thanks, David. You know, just this week, more grim warnings came in, even from usually upbeat quarters like Bill and Melinda Gates. Global development has not only halted progress, but on nearly all development goals, the world has actually slipped backwards. Data just in, in fact, yesterday from UNICEF and partners show that 1.2 billion, yes, billion children are now living with some form of poverty, what we call multidimensional poverty. In Europe and North America alone, some 90 million jobs, full-time jobs, that is, were lost in the second quarter. That's according to the International Labour Organization, ILO. And we're just at the beginning of this pandemic, according to health experts. So coupled with this massive shrinking of economies, this is indeed a once in a century, century event. But does it have to be as bad as it seems? The EU is sounding quite upbeat at the moment and saying they will you know, create a similar buffer, uh, a buffer for the most marginalized and of course, including children. Will other countries and other regions and organizations be able to follow suit? So we asked this panel of experts, this distinguished panel, where is the money going to come from? What lies ahead? And how do we make the best of the worst situation that will come you know, facing children and young people? So let's first take a look at some data. 
panelists now to answer please in 30 to 40 seconds. I'm going to ask you around, around the table, virtual around the table, what is your greatest fear for the world economy and your biggest hope right now? I'm going to start in fact with Jaiti Ghosh. Jaiti, what do you think? Then I'm going to go to Dominic Richardson, to Ian Golden, Sasha Nauta and Joel Kibazo. First to you Jaiti, what do you think is your biggest fear and greatest hope? The biggest fear is that what we're already seeing, a kind of two-stage uh, process whereby some countries are putting in big fiscal stimuli, trying to protect their economies and more or less managing to preserve at least livelihoods, if not employment. Whereas the vast majority of the world is actually going to suffer much more, is already facing fiscal austerity, is already seeing a descent into poverty, particularly child poverty and undernutrition and that this is not going to go away. The loss of livelihood and employment will get worse and worse. That's my greatest fear. And your my, hope? <laughs> my biggest hope is that humanity rises to the challenge. If it doesn't, we're actually doomed because we're facing even bigger crises in climate change and so on. So okay. I think my biggest hope is that uh, when it comes to the crunch and, and we're at the brink, people will see reason and will realize that we have to have a much more proactive state delivering social and economic rights to all the people and it can be afforded. Dominic, what do you think? Thanks, Sarah. Uh, thinking about this, I thought, well, probably the numbers the sheer size, the, uh, the predicted contraction. Uh, that's the first thing. And, uh, and um, the numbers of children falling into poverty we're seeing already and what might come in the future. And so like every sensible person, I'm a little bit scared of the unknown. I don't think we can predict very well what's coming up uh, as this crisis continues. It's not as if we're on the, we're on the out. Um, and uh, I'm also then concerned about whether or not uh, we've really learned from our lessons from past crises and whether we're really bringing them forward into dealing with COVID. Some of the, the richer countries with the stronger stimulus packages seem to be thinking of ways of winding them up. Austerity scares me immensely. In terms of uh, what I hope for, I hope we still have time to learn and rise to the challenge. Your fear, Ian Golden, and your hope my fear is that we're in a world that's shaped like a K, uh, with some going up and improving their opportunities, that rich countries can give a lot of money to their people. They've given $10 trillion already, but for poor people that cannot work remotely uh, and for poor countries, it's a long downward uh, trajectory in all respects. And I think that's what we're seeing. My hope is that uh, the world can wake up uh, that we in the Second World War, not the First World War. Uh, the First World War was a war in which the leadership was a terrible 
and led to even worse outcomes and another war going forward. In the Second World War, in the midst of the war, the welfare state was created, the United Nations uh, and lasting peace was created, uh, the Bretton Woods institutions, the Marshall Plan, and the sorts of visions that are embodied uh, in the work of UNICEF. Uh, and that was not only through great leadership, it was by citizens demanding uh, that they would not return. So uh, my fear is bounce back the, and going back to normal. That's what got us to where we were, are. We have to do things very differently in the future. Well, I might ask you what hope looks like, what letter hope looks like if fear looks like K. <laughs> so, hope, is, hope, so is like a, hope is like a tick, a big tick. <laughs> a big tick, okay. <laughs> Not a letter, but a tick. Uh, Sashnauta, your greatest fear right now and, and hope. Um, well, I'll, I'll start on the hope. I, I, I share Ian's um, hope that we that we learn, um, and I think every country and employer and government is perhaps by accident innovating at the moment as well in a crisis. And whilst it's a cliche, I my great hope is that this crisis is not wasted, and that the innovation and the long overdue reforms will actually take hold. Um, my fear I can be short about, it's been mentioned before, it's a very unequal recovery, both geographically, but also in terms of socioeconomic circumstances, urban, rural, and of course, generationally. Right, so your hope? I, th I think I already said my hope. I hope- um, Oh, you know, your hope was, was agreeing with Ian Goldman. Okay, got it. <laughs> <laughs> we don't want panelists to always agree with each other. Joel Kibazo, what is your greatest fear and biggest hope right now? Hello, um, my fear is, and I'll probably stick to the sort of uh, the area that I've been, I've worked a lot in Asia and all over the world. But my greatest fear is that um, just when uh, Africa was coming up, that uh, that it might actually fall back if uh, because of the severe impact of this. Don't forget that this is the um, you know the, we have a median age of 19 right across that continent. It is the going to be it was scheduled to be the engine of growth, including employment for for many parts of the world. My fear is that that may now not happen because of the effects of uh, COVID-19 and particularly because there aren't the resources to assist it in any in so many ways, whether it's health, whether it's technology, in so, on so many levels. My hope, <laughs> and sometimes it is really difficult to have a hope, is, is actually in that all the studies that have shown the resilience that Africa has shown so far, that will be actually, that Africa will continue along those lines. I mean, I traveled a lot in Asia, the SARS um, uh, crisis, and people are not despondent. Now, Africa is not yet despondent, and my hope is that they will keep that positivity, and actually that we do see that perhaps the demographics and other matters might actually help us ensure that that whole, that um, the situation is not as bad as many parts of the world. You have to hope, hope against hope. I'm going to come back to that issue yeah. on the demographic dividend uh, in just a minute. But going now a little bit deeper uh, to Ian Golden. Uh, Ian, you were one of those who actually predicted a massive shock to the global economy from a pandemic like this. So just how bad do you think it is and what kind of event, interventions are we seeing at the moment? Yes, this is entirely predictable in the same way that climate change and other 
negative outcomes of growth and connectivity are inevitable. And unless we change the way that we regulate and manage uh, globalization to be more inclusive uh, and more sustainable, we'll just have worse, worse uh, dystopian outcomes. So um, this is, I think this is going to be very bad, but it's very differentiated. We've seen China already emerging, much of East Asia, uh, and we've some, seen some people like Jeff Bezos doing incredibly well. He's earning an extra $23,000 a second. Uh, so what you see depends very much on uh, who you are, where you are. But I think in, in the UK uh, and the US, because of very poor leadership and management, uh, we go downhill. Ironically, there seems to be an inverse correlation between the strength of expertise uh, and the way that countries are, are handling this in many respects. Vietnam and Mongolia amongst the two best performers in the world. Um, and so listening to the WHO, listening to the international institutions, taking global coordination and, act, and action seriously are good. The one thing we can say, and this relates to hope, is that people have done things that we would have said was impossible uh, in January. We've ch all changed our behaviors. <laughs> I've stopped flying uh, and doing many other things. Um, and that's a great hope, I think, for the future. Governments have regulated in ways that we would have never thought possible, and they found money. They found $10 trillion, 10% plus of their GDP in the rich countries, which was regarded as an impossible thing to do. And they're supporting workers and companies uh, with bailouts. That's possible in the rich countries, not in the poor countries. But one thing that we have learned is that we can change dramatically when we want to, and we need to, for stopping the next pandemic, and climate change and other risks. So Ian, you mentioned some of the countries that you think are doing, uh, are doing well and doing better than others. What is the common denominator with those countries? Why are some doing better than others? What, what is it about them? They listen to international institutions. Um, they, they take best guidance uh, seriously. They don't have a hubris about their own capabilities and think that they're somehow special and different. Uh, and they recognize early and quickly the need for social solidarity and behavior change. Within Europe, incidentally, Greece, which is also one of the poorer countries and less equipped countries in Europe, has done astoundingly well, less than 300 deaths uh, over this whole period. Well, we had many more than that in one day in the UK. Uh, so. Um, it, it, it really is about uh, taking rules, regulations, and social solidarity and international advice seriously. Where is the money coming from, though? I mean, you mentioned, you know, suddenly they found money. Where, how is, how is that unfolding? Well, it's the old magic. It's our children will pay our debts. Um, it, but uh, it's, it's going to have to be found through higher taxes. It's basically debt at the moment. It's domestic debt and international debt. And that's one of the reasons that poor countries can't do it, is that their income, that's their ex exports, their remittances, their tourism, uh, their taxes have all collapsed at the same time as the expenses have gone up and they can't get more debt because their thresholds and the, you know, we, the rich countries are giving less than 1% of what they've given to themselves to developing countries. That's less than $100 billion when the rich countries are given $10 trillion and our aid budgets are contracting. The UK aid budget this year will be about 20% less than it was last year because the GNI, the income of the country uh, is going down and aid is calculated as a share of income. Uh, so in the developing countries never needed more, but they're going to get less. And that is one of the things that absolutely is an injustice that has to be fixed. So do you see this as a, an, 
impacting on uh, foreign aid budgets with economies in the north shrinking and therefore less for economies in the south, but less support? Is it IMF bailouts? What, what's the way forward? Well, official development assistance is shrinking because the incomes of the rich countries are shrinking and because they're making political excuses and saying we need to look after ourselves first. Uh, so yes, there's, there is going to be a tragic uh, contraction. Uh, IMF uh, is going to have to bail out over 100 countries. They're doing remarkably uh, because they're working remotely. They are already have made agreements in 67 countries, and I'm not always a fan of the IMF, but they really do uh, need to be congratulated for the ability of a remote board, remote staff, to be able to get out 67 loans with no conditions uh, over such a quick period of time. They need to do much more and they need much more money. Uh, they need to be recapitalized to do much more. And of course, other institutions need to, to do similar things. Uh, but um, it's going to have to come from the international community through the IFIs, the international financial institutions, and bilateral institutions, and it's not in nearly the volume yet. Many more people will die of starvation, and as you know, many more children will die of starvation uh, than will die of COVID. And that's unnecessary. We could stop that if we were prepared to. But not just children either. We're going to hear from Dominic Richardson, uh, not just children dying, but actually, you know, what are the multidimensional poverty elements uh, that impact on all sorts oh. of spheres. 1.2 uh, billion kids not going to in, school. Uh, in South Africa, and I'm going to segue into Joel, who of course is an Africa analyst. Uh, what between the two of you, ending with you and starting with 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 Joel, what do you think uh, is likely to happen in in the global South, particularly in Africa? Um, Sarah, Sarah, it's um, uh, I think Ian sort of uh, in many ways painted the sort of uh, global picture. Now, when you then break that down to re to, to regionally, it's actually it, the effects are perhaps even going to be much worse than uh, than we have uh, have seen. The points that Ian raised about the inability to raise money because you don't have the headroom, as they uh, put it, to be able to to go cup in hand to anybody means that so many programs, and here we're talking about things like poverty alleviation, people being able to feed, people being able to, to, um, to, to, to sort of go to hospitals. There was a figure that I thought was very interesting when the, this whole pandemic broke out. The South Sudan had four respirators in the whole country. So there's more respirators in, in one sort of uh, room somewhere in London or the US or whatever than there is in the whole country of uh, Sudan. And, you know, but if we take that a step further, there is no ability if you contract uh, COVID-19 in a place such as that or in many parts of Africa to even get to the hospital because, and then further, there isn't that hospital. So in so many ways, whether it is the economy, Africa's economies came to a standstill when this, when this happened. Let me just give you some figures. We went from between five, from between three and 5% growth in 2019 to the expectations that uh, you know will be a decline of around 3.2 percent this year, according to the IMF, and maybe what is it? And, so, and even though we expect, you know, Ian talked about the Cape had a bounce of about 3.4 as we start emerging now, because that emer that has started. But make no mistake, many of those jobs are lost. I give you one example. I was in Nairobi when the um, lockdown uh, start started. You know, I left London, went to Nairobi. In the hotel where I was, you know, after two days, there was three people. Now, if you take a country such as Kenya, 
where nearly 9% of GDP is dependent on tourism. And 1.1 million people are employed in that sector. This is just devastating because in, one, in sort of within a day or two, all of that vanished. So if you replay that across the continent, coupled with the fact that there is inability of governments to have stimulus uh, programs, you really are facing a very difficult uh, sort of uh, situation. What it has- and it was looking quite rosy at the beginning of the year, wasn't it? With good projected growth, with peaceful, stay, much more peace, much more a stable, a stable year. It was looking like that anyway, wasn't it? Oh, no, no, it was. I mean, uh, between uh, sort of, um, in, in the first few months of this year, I mean, I was in Ghana, Zambia, Uganda, Ethiopia. Most of these places were sort of looking positive, you know, and it looked as if, you know, that things were going to continue and on the upward, uh, on the upward, uh, on the upward swing. Don't forget that for Africa, the 90s and early 2000s were the period in which adjustments were made. They were now feeling as if we are now all about to sort of uh, really go on using a number of things such as the demographic uh, dividend to help, you know, uh, sort of uh, boost that, increased education. Since then, many countries at the moment have not gone to school. You know, school has, there hasn't been school since March. And it looks as if there won't be. And then when I say school, I mean from primary school right across to universities. So that is perhaps a failure of a whole year in a, in a, in a continent where education is absolutely critical to even just getting the most mundane of jobs. That's just the kind of picture where we are. Right. And, and when you say there's no school, it's not as though people go, uh, children go home and continue at home online because there just isn't always an online, is there? But what well, is the, what, no, no, is this? No Sorry, <laughs> go ahead. No, 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 I'm just saying that um, it is very, very, the, the connectivity is very, very small. One of the things that has happened, though, on the positive side is that the growth of of mobile telephony has meant that in some cases people can have uh, classes in the slums on their phones because they have them, but they don't have laptops on uh, right across uh, the continent. So there has been something, and what that has done is actually encourage governments to start thinking that they need to upscale their investment in technology because this has actually caught them short the inability to even be able to uh, sort of quickly arrange Zoom calls uh, to the IMF to ask for money. So many, I've, I've actually spoken to a number of ministers who said this has really shown us up and shown the re that we need to get to the levels of many parts of the world to be able to sort of connect. Otherwise, you know, we're doomed. And, and IMF is one who's looking at really trying to leapfrog the younger generation in, into that very area but of skill training. Uh, if you look back at 2008, why is this different to the 2008 financial crisis for Africa? Well, it's been uh, different because, uh, as I said before, 90s and early 2000s have been used for economic reforms. So Africa was in a good place that the economies were starting to grow. Secondly, to an extent, because they were less connected into the international economy, that when they, uh, the hit came of the economic crisis in much of the Western world, Africa did not suffer from it, partly also because it was the time when they still very much had the raw materials and China was very much a part of the growth 
of that uh, sector and the buying from uh, from um, from that uh, from, from many African countries. So in that sense, there was a very very only a small decline in African economies while the West actually and other parts of the world suffered. This time, their economies have come to a standstill, a complete standstill. They're starting to emerge now, but they were locked down meant, you know, I mean, there was very serious measures in many of the countries, you know, with the police, with the army. If you were caught outside your house after six o'clock or seven o'clock, it was quite severe. In a bit, and partly that was because there was an awareness that they did not have the health facilities if a big breakout should happen. So, so that meant that everything stopped. So that's the big difference between 2008 and now. Picking up on your earlier point uh, on, on hope uh, and Africa's youth bulge, could it be, in fact, its saving grace? We're seeing that Africa's been spared very high numbers of deaths, uh, although infection rates are very high, even in countries like South Africa, we've got very high infection rates, but not very high death rates. Uh, and there are various theories for that. One is the, the young population. Is there a chance now that this long-held dream of a demographic dividend for <laughs> Africa for the 20th, 21st century may well, you know, dawn in the next few years? Well, you know, I mean, in some ways it's too early to say. Infection rates as of uh, sort of yesterday's uh, CDC, Africa CDC, um, uh, report is that uh, about three infection rates are 3.6 million but that remember the population is about 1.2 1.3 billion across uh, across the region so that is still very very small deaths yes they've been rising but still relatively small in number compared to the sizes of populations I mean you take countries such as Nigeria over 200 million where only 54,000 uh, people are being infected and even less deaths so but we don't yet know, and the scientists both locally and internationally have been working on this. Some of the things that have been said is that amongst the young, amongst this very young population, is that uh, the prevalence of other diseases has, has actually in some ways <laughs> been helpful in sort of uh, strengthening their metabolism and being resistant to uh, to um, uh, sort of severe contraction of um, of COVID nineteen. That is one uh, particular case. Secondly, the in many ways the fact that they're not as interconnected as the rest of the world. If you notice, South Africa, the biggest uh, parts where COVID nineteen has really taken hold of in South Africa, Egypt. And in many ways, to an extent, Kenya, those are countries that are much more linked in to the global economy than most of the other parts of the world. So that I think has also um, play, played a part. But I do, you know, and, and the combination of that plus governments realizing that uh, they needed to bring in severe lockdowns because they, they were doomed otherwise. I think the combination of those things has played a part. Scientifically, we don't yet know if the fact that there's so many young people is actually the real reason why, um, you know, that uh, the numbers are so far being relatively small. But, you know, we'll find out in the, I think, in due time. Thanks, Joel. I, I have a helicopter going overhead, so uh, excuse the noise. I'm going to turn now to, uh, to Sasha Nauta in, uh, in Amsterdam, editor of public policy for The Economist newspaper. Uh, Sasha, from your perspective as a journalist covering public policy issues uh, across Europe in particular, 
what trends are you seeing in Europe and the EU? Just pick up some of those points from, from what you heard this week uh, from the EU. Seem to be suggesting just yesterday that the economic contraction might not be quite as bad as, as originally envisaged. Uh, and in fact, that the, you know, the floodwaters uh, may well be held back by the proverbial you know, EU finger in the dike. Sorry, I had to mention that being coming from the Netherlands. Uh, so what, what do you think, uh, Sasha? Will, will it be possible? I mean, um, so Ursula von der Leyen, the um, European Commission president, indeed was, was I, would say, I would say, carefully optimistic about, indeed, the, um, the recovery and, and, and bold, as she should be, um, about the possibility of the bloc to come together and invest wisely and show solidarity. Um, and she even mentioned, uh, you know, foreign policy there, always a, a dangerous thing to mention. But, you know, going back to the point of foreign aid falling as GDP falls, I think there's a, there's a real question there. Although, to be completely honest, that will not be at the top of the EU's um, list, unfortunately. Um, so, she's not wrong. I mean, you know, the, 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 the depth, the, the deepest moment, right, was, was, was mid-April in terms of GDP contraction for the world. We are globally recovering, but as several speakers have mentioned, that recovery is wildly varied, both in terms of countries, and you see that within Europe, but you obviously see that outside of Europe, as well as industries. And I think the two hang together very importantly. And I think we're only really starting to get to grips with that. Earlier in the year, we were all worrying about a sort of a supply chain, you know, global supply chain standstill. Whereas now you actually see that manufacturing and goods are, are actually recovering far more than we'd expected, whereas services aren't. And that has a direct impact on things, you know, Joel mentioned tourism, countries that, um, that, count on tourism, on other service sector jobs are going to be hit much harder and much longer probably than countries like Germany that um, rely on, on goods and of course China. I mean China is basically the one big country that is set to expand and in the middle you sort of have the you know the US's and South Korea's of this world and then at the other end you've got Britain um, which is set for a recession not just sort of once in a century, once in a, once in a three century um, recession. So I think it's a very mixed bag and I think it's, you know, I'm calling you from the Netherlands, you're in Italy, I believe. These are two countries who within Europe seldom agree on anything. Um, they did agree a big rescue package, but they were still to see whether all of Ms. van der, Le van der Leyen's um, ambitions will be agreed across the block. I'm too early to tell, to be honest. What about the potential knock-on effects, though, of uh, on women, on you know, women, women not only at work but at home, uh, and children? What what are you seeing there, and and can the EU, you know, really provide this 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 support specifically to the most vulnerable, most marginalised? Um, so let's take that in turn. So so. Women is an interesting one. I mean, women, women actually, it, it, it plays nicely to the point on services. Women's jobs have been hit disproportionately, um, particularly early on in the lockdown for two reasons, primarily because they are overrepresented in the service sector, which normally is very recession proof. But this, as we all know, is a recession like none other. Nobody is going out and using services anymore. Nobody's going out for meals or going on holiday. Um, but secondly, of course, um, the childcare, um, the ch you know, the, I don't want to call it a burden because, but you know, 
childcare work has, has grown tremendously, homeschooling, and that is still in 2020 disproportionately falling on women. And so what you see in Britain, for example, is that women have also been furloughed more than men, even, in, even if you control for industry differences, so may have volunteered to furlough more. And I think the real impact of women in the workforce, we will only see in a few years time because there will be lots of subtle impacts that we can't see yet of women basically taking a step back in whatever form or shape. On kids, um, kids is kind of the thing that, that gets me most, you know, um, heated up. I, the schools here in Amsterdam are open again and they opened fairly quickly. Um, again but um and this is a country that is well connected egalitarian most kids have got internet but even here in the short in the several months that schools were closed you saw inequality widening and everybody will recognize that right it's you know the kids who've got all the connections and the good school and the parents who are available versus the kids who have none of those things and you see that playing out around the world still um i think the Impact on kids, on a positive note, you ask for hope and fears. Um, most of the surveys that I've seen on how are kids actually doing, how are they psychologically doing, show how resilient kids are, right? How much they are able to actually bounce back far more than their parents fear. Um, my fear, however, is that the, again, the economic impact on their long-term prospects, both in terms of learning losses, which we know from previous periods in history when kids you know, when, when teachers go on strike for a long time, etc., you see that back in their lifelong earnings. And of course, and then I'll round off because it's a long winded answer. Once they actually do finish school, you know, what job market are they entering? Youth unemployment was already one of those problems that was there before the crisis. It is only getting worse. Thanks, Sasha. Uh, so sticking with the, the gender issue uh, and, and really that knock-on effect, you've, you've spoken about women being twice as likely to, to lose their jobs. Uh, turning to you now, Jaiti uh, Ghosh in Delhi, uh, back in April and March, I listened to a, a, lecture, a lecture that you gave and you painted an extremely bleak, bleak picture back then for India and South Asia and warned that it was headed for the likes of a crisis never seen before, not since partition anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, what is happening now uh, before your eyes in, in Delhi, but also more broadly in the region and what kind of interventions are you seeing? Well, unfortunately, things are actually a bit worse than I had expected, even back in March. And that has really happened because the official responses have been so minimal and so inadequate to deal with such a horrendous, uh, extremely severe crisis. So uh, in India, the GDP officially has collapsed by about 24% in this quarter, but uh, it's actually more because this doesn't include informal activity. So the likely reduction is at least one third of the economy. It is not on the path of recovery. And that's really because there has been almost no significant fiscal response. Total fiscal spending has been only about 8% more in nominal terms from what it was the previous year, which is simply inadequate when you're dealing with a collapse of this magnitude. India is possibly the most extreme case, but pretty much all of South Asia, large parts of West Asia, similar. And remember that these two regions together have many more people than East Asia as well including China. We are talking about a very significant part of humanity in which the economy is collapsing beyond anyone's expectations. 
uh, even me, my most dire and pessimistic expectations, and in which livelihoods and employment are doing even worse. So the GDP growth that we've seen is very, very unequally distributed. We've talked about Jeff Bezos, but we have our own equivalents in the region, and they are doing all right, thank you. They're just, you know, doing, in fact, rather better than they did before, whereas the vast majority of people are in very, very deep economic distress. Uh, you're muted, I think, Sarah. You mentioned that there's no fiscal stimulus. Uh, what kind of interventions are you seeing, uh, Jaiti? Well, you know, they're very limited. What we really needed was a dramatic increase in uh, expenditure for the basics in the care economy, for sure, in health. I mean, it's a pandemic, for heaven's sake. You really have to double or triple your health spending just to cope with the additional kinds of challenges on nutrition. We already have the largest number of hungry people in the world. The pandemic has denied people livelihoods, which means they cannot afford food. It has disrupted supply chains in many countries, which means that food is not reaching a number of backward locations. And it has deprived preschool children of a lot of the existing nutrition programs. So where we had particularly vulnerable groups, let's say half the population in India, but in Pakistan, in Bangladesh as well, they were often, at least the children were supported by child nutrition programs. Those were all closed along with the schools and the, you know, the nurseries and so on. And so this has been a devastating thing where many children who were on that edge have actually been pushed over into very severe undernutrition, which I don't have to tell UNICEF has massive implications for future development. So we needed big nutrition interventions and we needed much more activity on employment programs that actually provide income and livelihood in addition to income support. So this is the x-ray that you, you speak about, that it's, uh, this is in effect exposing what was there beneath the, the surface, beneath the skin uh, anyway, and now it's coming out, right? Yeah. It's, uh, it, it was perhaps not as obvious, especially when it comes to, to gender, to women. Uh, so what's happening on, on that front? Because you've, you focus a lot about the feminization of the economy and the care, the need for a care economy. Can you elaborate a bit on that and maybe give some examples of where there is a good care economy. You know, one of the surprises to me has been how this pandemic has shown so bleakly and sharp, uh, sharply the significance of care work in all of our societies. And so I expected, in fact, that this would actually cause societies to recognize and reward and remunerate care work more adequately. To my shock and horror, this has not happened. In fact, it hasn't happened globally very few countries have responded by actually recognizing the enormous contribution of care work and beginning to reward them adequately. And in the developing world, it's the opposite. In fact, many care workers have even been denied their wages over the pandemic because governments are fiscally constrained and so on. So uh, one of the things that has emerged is that if you do not spend adequately on care, you will be uh, very, you will have a massive lack of resilience as an economy. You will actually not be able to cope with something like a pandemic and therefore your economy also will suffer. Uh, yet we are still continuing to deny care workers. Now we know disproportionately about 80% of care work is done by women. I'm talking only about the paid work. Unpaid we know it's much larger but in the care workers uh, broadly defined whether it is primary school teaching, it's healthcare, it's elderly care, it's uh, therapeutic care, all of those things are dominantly performed by women, dominantly on the lower paid end of the spectrum, 
And in many cases, uh, governments increasingly have relied on voluntary workers in the developing world. Voluntary, uh, it's called that way because then you don't have to pay the minimum wages. Then you can say, oh yes, you know, we give you an honorarium, please be happy with that because you know, you're a woman, you love serving humanity, you're, you know, you're full of motherly love, you can do all this for almost free. This has actually got intensified in this crisis, which is unbelievable but true. Across the developing world, we find these auxiliary workers, voluntary workers, part-time workers are being forced to take on greater and greater burdens with less and less protection, even forget the social protection, even you know, physical protection against the pandemic, and often lower wages or delayed wages and sometimes no wages. Wow. I'm going to, uh, yes, thank you for that uplifting note. <laughs> Sorry, but I'm going to come back to you on, on some yeah. examples, or maybe David will, yeah. some examples of, of where, where you, you're seeing uh, a little bit of a better response, particularly mm -hmm. on the, the mm -hmm. feminization of the... Well, I can, can I come back? Two of go the... To, kind, yes, just, just very briefly, two positive examples. Sure. Vietnam, you already mentioned. Yes. where in fact they immediately recognized and expanded care services. And one of the reasons for the success, the state of Kerala in India which has from the beginning recognized the importance of care work and has increasingly put more and more of its very limited resources into that. Right. Yeah. Thank you, Jaiti. I'm going to turn now to, uh, to Dominic Richardson for a UNICEF perspective uh, and particularly to you some examples of perhaps the social contract that, that you speak about, um, Dominic. Uh, just yesterday, as I mentioned earlier, UNICEF came out with new figures uh, showing that 1.2 billion children are now living with one form of poverty or another. What do you see coming down the tracks, both you know, in the short term, medium term and longer term? And, and just unpack that multi-dimensional aspect for us, please. Okay, thanks, Sarah. We'll start with that then, um, how we measure multi-dimensional poverty. Uh, we do it in, there's, there's different ways, and there's different sort of indexes as we add up children who can access certain things access certain services or like health and education or perhaps are deprived of, of goods in the household that are that are that are important for a, a good childhood and help them engage better with services um, as, a, as the colleagues have already mentioned on the call uh, this this crisis um, is, is is unique in, in in many ways that it stopped children going to school um, so that they're, they're now deprived of that uh, it stopped many children receiving immunizations. Um, so they're beginning to be deprived of that, crowded out of primary healthcare services. Um, uh, there's, there's, just, there's just a myriad of stories. Um, I think that the thing I suppose I really want to convey is picking up a couple of points. Uh, COVID is, is different from what we've seen before, but it's not as if we haven't seen health and economic crises before. COVID is different because the health crisis um, set off an economic crisis. Now, the economic crisis in the recent past have been driven by overspend, overborrowing, overspend publicly, overborrowing privately, uh, crashes in house prices and, and so on. Um, we're seeing something, something different now. So it's not so much the inequality on the way in, though we do know that growth is unequal and it's always been unequal and market inequality is growing. Um, but the crisis is gonna increase inequality further. And I'm afraid to say the way it looks right now, the recovery, the recovery is just going to accentuate that. Um, I'm particularly concerned about the balance uh, or imbalance in the fiscal stimulus response that we're seeing. I mean, Ian put it well in terms of 
rich countries couldn't rub two pennies together to pay for child policy in the past 10 years, but managed to put together, scrimp and scrape, scrape 10 trillion US dollars PPP in the first two months of the crisis, and it's grown, uh, um, grown since. And around about six in every, uh, six, sorry, one in every six dollars has gone to families, uh, gone to, through social welfare, and the, the rest uh, through uh, what you might call corporate welfare, um, through businesses. Now, we saw something like that in the global financial crisis. Um, and we're not saying it's not, a, not good to have uh, economic stimulus in that form, uh, but it's questionable whether the balance is right. Uh, when we've reviewed literature over a number of a couple of decades on uh, how children respond to health and economic crises based upon government intervention, there's no there's there's no real great news over over fiscal stimulus in an economic sense. Yes, it keeps people in jobs, um, uh, that's for sure, uh, and yes, it keeps incomes up on average, um, uh, but they all tend to then follow with austerity, and austerity is not good news whichever way you cut it. We can't find examples of austerity resulting in improved outcomes for families and children, and no one's going to be surprised about that. I mean, perhaps what's more concerning is the types of problems we see and the austerity we expect. Uh, societies get more unequal, more children are institutionalized, poverty increases. Now we talk about V-shaped recovery, uh, and we expect one, um, but that's just in growth terms. GDP per capita, is likely to stay down for four or five years, in some cases, 10. Spain didn't recover following global financial crisis before another one hits Croatia uh, either. And that, that particular measure is, is related to a number of concerning outcomes for children. I've got lot, lots more to, to say on this, Sarah. I don't want to keep, keep going on. I'm sure on you have. <laughs> I have no doubt. And I think we're going to, we're going to get some questions from uh, from the audience and a poll so we'll be coming back to you for a for a quick summary as we race towards the end of the hour uh, and also kind of looking at what are the future proofing it's a it's a term that the eu is using a lot unicef is known probably more for its work in developing world but you in uh, the office of research in Accenti have done a lot of work with high income countries so that's also uh, worth worth noting and perhaps we'll pick up something from uh, from the Q and A that the audience will be will have with the audience, but let me pass now to a poll from uh, from the audience now uh, to the audience. Unfortunately, our eminent distinguished panelists will not be able to answer, or maybe fortunately, because we've heard a lot from you. So let's hear from them. Uh, and we weren't actually able to have the Minister of Finance uh, join us. So, uh, so put your hat on as a Minister of Finance in a middle-income country and see what would you actually put your money, your limited resources, where would you put your money right now? Uh, you're going to get, your host and panelists of course cannot vote unfortunately. I'll just read them out. Here are the following four areas uh, that you, you should prioritize. Ask which would you prioritize? Uh, with your limited budget. Economic stimulus, that is subsidies to farmers, businesses, job creation. Uh, David, why don't you take us through the rest of them while we give the, uh, the audience a chance to, uh, to go through that. And we'll have a little break so that they can think through 
uh, those answers. So, so David, what is the what is the poll uh, in brief, and what are the um, what are the outcomes that uh, when are we going to get the answers? Thanks, Sarah. Um, a great discussion. I think um, the question is framed really to make uh, our audience think about the kind of choices that policymakers have to have. So if you were the Minister of Finance, Sarah said, in a middle-income country right now, which of these four areas would you prioritize most in your limited budget to best support children? Would it be A, economic stimulus, subsidies to farmers, businesses, job creation, to stabilize employment and household incomes? Or B, social protection, cash transfers, in-kind transfers, income supplementation to bolster social safety nets? Or would it be C, digital connectivity, support to digital uh, transmissions for remote learning, social interaction, support to home-based working for parents and guardians? And as Joel has actually said, just simply being able to actually work and function in many ways that support economies and societies. Or D, essential services, i.e. access to healthcare, sanitation, in-school education, and direct support to frontline workers. So we're gonna give um, everyone a little bit of a, a, of a break to answer these questions uh, in a little while, but I'm gonna pose before we go, maybe we'll take the question down. Um, we're gonna pose a, a question from the audience to the panelists. We've got a couple that have come through and things that haven't yet been quite addressed in the, in the, in the discussion so far. And one of them, which I'm gonna to put to both JT and I think I'm gonna to put to Sasha, is about early childhood development. Um, you know, early childhood development has been underfunded for many years. And yet there are very good studies to show the benefits of early childhood development to school achievement, both from primary all the way through and to your future career prospects. Now, preschools have often not returned uh, with primary schools going back and a lot of programs have been cut. So what, a government, what, do you, what would you say that governments need to do to secure the future of our younger citizens? We're gonna start with you, JT. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, this is one of those situations where governments, I would say, they kind of panicked and they said we have to close everything down, including all educational institutions, including nurseries and creches for, you know, early childhood development. I think that this has been uh, done hastily and it's been done in a very unfair way because a lot of these places also provided basic services of other kinds, including nutrition. I think governments should have, before closing down, thought of how to deliver these other services. They should have thought about the fact that the digital divide in developing countries is so large that the majority of children will not be, and anyway, preschool children cannot do this digital learning kind of nonsense. Let's not kid ourselves. So they really needed to think of socially distanced or physically distant ways of providing this education, which requires more resources, which necessarily requires more teachers, more educationists more uh, pediatricians, more of all of these things. In other words, it requires governments to spend more on this, particularly in this period. I think this has been one of the flaws in the response. Uh, I can talk about many others, but, uh, and uh, since the role of the IMF was mentioned earlier, I think it's very, very unfortunate 
that while the leadership of the IMF has been making very good noises about the need not to do fiscal austerity at this point, when it comes down to the ground and the IMF requirements on countries getting their loans and the debt relief and so on, they're still doing the same old, same old. They're still calling on budget cuts. They're still saying you cannot hire more people. They're still saying you should not be spending more on these unproductive areas like basic health, education, social services, and so on. So unfortunately, what governments themselves are not doing has been compounded by the role of international organizations. I agree with Ian Golden, we should listen to them mostly, but sometimes we shouldn't. And I think the case of the IMF enforcing austerity on developing countries at a time like this is clearly one of those cases when they shouldn't be listened to. Thanks very much, JT. Over to you, Sasha, same question. Well, there's this, I mean, in one word, invest, um, but in a few more words, um, I mean, we, we argued very early on as a paper that we should start with the young first when it comes to reopening existing institutions. So any country that has any early childhood infrastructure should open that before they open anything else for two reasons. One, young brains, right? There's the most damage you can do and there's the most you can win in the short uh, amount of time, actually three reasons. Second, um, as Jaiti mentioned, you know, there's absolutely no point in putting them in front of sort of digital education and um, they'll just eat the iPad or whatever. Um, and three, mothers again, right? So it is far more intense homeschooling a three-year-old than it is a 16-year-old. So firstly, open whatever you've got. Secondly, um, bailouts. So there are a lot of existing childcare centres right now which are going to go bust more or less as we speak in several countries and there's a real question there for governments of stepping up and what kind of support can they offer um, the sector. And then the third, as I said, and the most important thing is invest in early childhood. As you mentioned, David, this was an issue beforehand. We've known this all along. A dollar there goes further than at any point you know, in the trajectory. And as I mentioned earlier, sorry if this is becoming a bit of a depressing conversation, but childhood inequality is like my biggest fear in all of this. And, the, you know, on a positive note, the most you can do to fight that is in that really early stage. So if you're going to put your money anywhere, put it there. Thanks very much, Sasha. So um, I'm going to ask to the other end of the educational spectrum, to Ian, Joel and Dominic. It's not looking great if you're in high school just about to graduate or going on to college um your, your education at a critical phase of your life is being kind of put on hold there are lots of studies saying the cost of this could be immense setback economies for decades etc so what should governments do to ensure that the education continues and as sasha and jaitu said that we can actually use this as an opportunity to try and address the issue of equity in higher education. I'm going to start with Ian, then uh, Joel, and then Dominic. Ian, please. You're absolutely right to, to point to this because it's as deep a crisis, I think, as early childhood learning. Um, there needs to be a massive investment by governments around the world uh, in this. Uh, we are seeing cuts to university budgets uh, at a time when we need more. We're also seeing all sorts of other things impact on uh, admissions like visas uh, being made more stringent. And at the same time, of course, uh, there are a lot of concerns regarding whether people get jobs afterwards. So we also need to be more focused, I think, on allowing people to study for longer and to helping them get jobs 
uh, in the future. And this, of course, relates to a point that Jaiti's made absolutely uh, correctly, um, which is that one shouldn't always listen to international institutions. Um, there is a lot of scope for governments to spend. And indeed, when I uh, had any say in these matters, uh, when I was working with President Mandela in South Africa, uh, we never got any money uh, from the IMF and over a five-year period, uh, mostly refused all the loans from the World Bank. So I certainly don't believe in listening to the international institutions uh, willy-nilly. However, when they give you grants uh, to deal with COVID, I think um, if that's the only source of money, uh, we should welcome it and we should welcome more grants with less conditions. And also that needs to focus on the university sector. Thanks very much, uh, Ian. Uh, over to you, Joel. Thanks very much. I mean, this is a topic that is actually sort of uh, very much on my mind in, in my house, given that I've got somebody about to go to university next week. So um, it, is, uh, it is something that has uh, been resonating. But um, in terms of, and I'll speak about the board, is sort of a slightly sort of, I'm sitting in London where, you know, the conditions will be different to what's very much on the ground. In many parts of the African continent, universities and the high institutions of higher education just stopped. Now, what, so, so, and in some cases, lack of knowledge even said, I mean, I heard of a, a case uh, last week of a university that had thought they'd gone to online teaching, where the minister then decided that wasn't a good idea. So, so in other words, that I think the key thing we have to do is to be talking about post-pandemic, in other words, for, that you will need a recovery, you will need recovery mechanisms if people are not trained, if people are not educated, and you lose a year, two years, or whatever, that will actually affect your long-term development. And I think not, there's not, almost nobody has been focusing on that very aspect of saying that, look, in whatever field, whether they're scientists, the engineers, and everything, that in, in terms of looking at this, so the assistance that has been given, particularly by the international institutions, has been very much for immediate relief. However, six months down the road, what we now need to be looking at is post, mm -hmm. uh, you, you know, in other words, how will we then go on from there into year two, year three, year four? So that is where the next uh, set of discussions needs to be. That's where governments need to be looking, because if not, we're going to have a failed generation. And in the case of Africa, this group of 19-year-olds, where 60 to 65 percent, you know, will then be lost and production in companies and growth will be lost as well. Thanks, Joel. Thanks for those words. Um, Dominic, over to you. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, David. Um, some years ago, working on, on sort of investing in, in children across the, the live course working on OECD, we were very much beginning with the position that we heard from Sasha and ensuring that we didn't underinvest in the early years, uh, giving children the best start in life. And there's plenty of good evidence to say that matters. Um, but if we think about the live course sense, there's a number of children right now uh, who didn't benefit from recent uh, you know, growth in early investments, didn't benefit from before the crisis hit, didn't invest in, in strengthening of child welfare systems and family allowance systems, the growth in conditional and unconditional cash transfers and so on. And so the types of messages we're hearing from Ian and Joel about ensuring 
that we don't forget the older generation of children moving into the, the labor market, looking to specialize in higher education, that we don't forget them uh, is, is critically important because uh, they're a generation that, that has, across a, in, a, in, a, in a life course sense, uh, they're, they're at risk of missing out on both. They're at risk of missing out on the investment that the new cohorts are receiving, and they're uh, at risk of missing out on, on, on additional supports because of a continued focus uh, uh, on early years. Um, I think we, um, we, we, certainly need to, we certainly need to communicate that. I mean, I don't want to focus too, too much on education per se. It's important, I think, following uh, uh, some of the, the questions we've seen, so some of the things we've seen about uh, growing uh, deprivation and the children out of school, that we should be working to get all, all children into school as soon as possible. Um, get them back to a normal, a normal way of life. Schools and the functioning of schools are critical for the functioning of the economy. So uh, that's, that's not just for the children, it's about getting the whole system, uh, system moving again. But as I say, as I say that, um, it's, these, these challenges that children face before the crisis and accentuated by the crisis will not be solved solely uh, by focusing on education systems and development. There's a lot of things that need treating. There are a lot of children uh, who are suffering greater uh, risk of violence in the crisis, greater risk of mental health problems, uh, plus the deprivation. And then those children that, that are reliant on, on, on the healthcare, primary healthcare systems, which they'll, they'll have received less over time. So let's think whole child as we think about getting their main services back up and running. Thanks, Dominic. Um, you, all great points made. Um, we Leading Minds, we are going to be doing this every two or three weeks. So that our next Leading Minds is actually going to be on child health and well-being as we look at various aspects of how COVID is affecting children. But we thank all our panelists for those. David, before we go, I'm very curious about the, the poll results. Did we get... Did we get anything, anything particularly? Oh, there you go. Read the there we are. first. Yeah, well, there we are, Sarah. We were, we were, we were probably going to take a quick break before the poll, but poll results, but we can see them now. And so what you have is quite a diverse spread, actually. Um, I think services clearly is the one that people feel is needed um, and followed by the social protection um, and then really a little bit of the economic stimulus and digital connectivity as only 10%. But I think that the, the fact that we do have a spread between uh, the, the actual essential services and then the others is, shows how diverse the world is becoming and how the different transmission mechanisms are better understood uh, and that governments have to have a diverse spread of policies to support uh, you know, the vulnerable and poor families rather than just a single size fits all. So um, uh, thanking all of our panelists, uh, wonderful uh, reactions and over to you, back uh, Back over to you, Sarah. Yes, exactly, thanks, thanks David, and, and thanks to all our panelists. We're coming to the end of the, of the hour, we've gone slightly over the hour, uh, but again, as David mentioned, two weeks time, the 1st of October, same time, same place, another Thursday at 3 p.m. Central European time for Leading Minds Online. And we're going to be looking at child health. Children have often been forgotten as being, you know, how, what's happening to 
their health, vaccinations, immunization. We've got a top special guest, uh, Dr. David Navarro, uh, and others who will soon be revealed. So over to you uh, to close up with the final sting. And thanks again to our fantastic panelists. Uh, just to note, there will be a document, a one-page document that will sum up this last hour. Uh, and we will be distributing that to all the participants uh, and the panelists for their own uh, purview as well. So from the Leading Minds team at UNICEF Office of Research, over and out. Bye-bye.